You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, and hilarious, mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun. Let's just pull that band-aid off and get into this. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So in our last episode on gender rebels of ancient Greece and Rome, we talked about eunuchs, how they came to be, how they were perceived, and what their lives were like in the ancient world. Last week, we kind of just introduced the topic and focused on people who probably chose to undergo castration for religious and sometimes even gender-affirming reasons. But this probably wasn't the most common experience most people had who underwent castration. Enslaved people were castrated as well, and this cannot be said to be consensual. We're just getting right into it, you guys. We're not even stopping to chit-chat. We're just diving right into the deep end right now. And I'm just gonna say, most of our episodes deal with difficult and violent topics. You know, you've been listening to us for almost four years. Let's be honest, we're talking about the ancient world. People did some really wild stuff that I look back on it and I'm like, how did people survive? Oh, I wouldn't make it. I would not have reached the age I am now if I lived in the ancient world. I mean, I might be a gothic warlord at some point. Maybe I just get killed real early. I have no idea. (laughs) I have no idea. I mean, I think I would probably go down the whole witchy woman i would definitely be like trying to scare people into letting me gather my bones in the graveyard or whatever one strategy we said we could probably pull off is the two of us could be one batavai warrior yeah we'd be a really good batavai warrior just one though (laughs) between us the reality is that in the ancient world unless you were pretty highborn life was going to be real tough for you we wouldn't last that long you guys that's basically what we're saying (laughs) i know where i fit into society so (laughs) 
we're just giving you a little caveat because this episode is especially disturbing. This episode deals with castration in the context of child sex slavery. So be warned, we're about to delve into some very dark territory. It's going to continue getting darker. If these are things that you don't want to listen to, just skip this episode. There'll be another one next week. It was hard for us to research and write, but we felt it was important to cover it. But if you are not in a place where you want to hear about this stuff, totally understood. This is your warning. But I'm just going to say this once again. This is another arrow in your sort of like quiver for when someone says ancient Greeks and Romans, they were just such an idealistic society. When you turn around and say, for who? Sorry, for whom? You know, whenever any dude bro with a smattering of classics education starts to opine on the, the ancient Romans and their democracy and how they should bring it back. Maybe that's not such a great idea, guys. This whole series, we've given you many reasons, but this is perhaps like one of the most disturbing reasons why. So let's just pull that bandaid off and get into this. There was a specific kind of enslaved person on the Roman slave market called Pure Delicatus. The translation for this is like sweet treat or candy or delicious, which is what delicatus means, essentially. Yeah. God. Yeah. These enslaved people were young boys, usually prepubescent, chosen for their physical beauty and castrated to preserve their youth and beauty. They were sold as sex slaves to wealthy male buyers. This would typically happen to young boys deemed the most beautiful. The most popular look involved long, wavy blonde hair. This was the look associated with Ganymede, Zeus's cupbearer and a rare male victim of his sexual violence. If a young boy who fit that look happened to fall into slavery, he was in danger of castration because castrating a child could increase his value in the slave market by a lot. However, there are also accounts of this happening to boys in toddlerhood or even infancy. So they didn't know if this was going to turn into a beautiful boy or not. It was like a toddler. I imagine it was probably a beautiful toddler. I don't know. That's awful. Yeah, and that's like the awful thing about it is they were sexualizing these children that young. Yep. Sometimes the slave seller would castrate boys he was trying to sell to fetch a higher price, and sometimes a wealthy owner would have an enslaved child castrated to preserve his youth and beauty. So this could be done by the seller or by the buyer. Here we're going to talk about how this process was actually done, which might be disturbing to some people if you're not already disturbed. So go ahead and skip ahead, maybe a couple of minutes, and uh, we'll still be here disturbing you some more. So the method typically used on child victims of castration was compression. This is one of the methods discussed by Paula Vagina, a physician from the 7th century. He describes a process by which young boys would soak in a hot bath, softening the testicles. Then. Their testicles would be squeezed with the fingers, quote, until they disappeared. So it's a bit hard to parse out whether this is medically possible, whether something is lost in the translation here, or how realistic this description really is. But it's what we have. And the picture we're getting here is that these children's testicles were crushed to the point of permanent injury. And no pain control was given for this or any of the other methods of castration that I've described, by the way, that I've seen. The things I've seen about pain control for castration involve the process and how it was done in later times, like the Byzantine Empire and China. One method I saw uh, discussed pressing down on an artery in the neck to make the child pass out and then performing the operation. 
Again, I'm not sure if that was done in ancient Greek or Roman times, and I'm not sure if that's medically realistic either. I just don't know. For a child who underwent castration this young, a lot of the physical processes that happen in puberty wouldn't happen. People castrated in childhood typically did not undergo vocal changes, didn't grow a larger or more muscular frame, and retained a more feminine look, more so than eunuchs who were castrated in adulthood. In later times, boys were castrated to sing in operas and Catholic church choirs in Italy as late as the 1800s. So this was in later times specifically done to preserve the voice. I mean, sure, but... Let's call it the voice, but also it was still a very predatory pedophilic thing that was happening that then was the voice. Okay. You know, there's a real deep rabbit hole we could go down about the Catholic Church and carrying forward this tradition of abusing children in this way from Roman times. It's all Orastes Romanos when you think about it going down through the lines. I know. As a lapsed Catholic, I'm not here to take any shots at people's practicing religion. This is all stuff that's been well documented. And you can see its roots in ancient history. And that's really all we're trying to say here. And it came from somewhere and it continued somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. So let's keep going. So the puer delicatus was essentially a sex slave, a child in an incredibly vulnerable, dangerous and damaging position in the household of a wealthy Roman man. These relationships might look like the Greek or Romanos or Rastes relationships and were probably fetishized and idealized as a form of those, but in reality, the child here was in an even more vulnerable position than a typical Romanos in ancient Greece. So the Romanos and the Romanos Rastes relationship at least had some social standing and protection, although that relationship was also incredibly abusive and exploitative. And horrible. We're not saying this is good here. It's just like there's even a lower level you can go if you believe it. I mean, there's always a lower level. Yeah. <laughs> the relationship between a puer delicatus and his ancient Roman owner was far more socially imbalanced. It was a master-slave relationship with zero benefit, ostensible or otherwise, to the submissive person. It was just about sexual dominance of a child. It's fucking disgusting. And to be clear, so is the general, like, traditional Erastes Romanos relationship. Not disagreeing with that either. Also fucking disgusting. But the boy was supposed to be able to say no, ostensibly. And when we talk about this in our episode on Hadrian and Antinous, which is on our Patreon at the $5 level, we do go into, you know, the dynamics of consent there and why this obviously wasn't real consent, even if it wasn't, like, and obviously we're dealing with children, so it's not consent anyway. But... At least ostensibly, there was supposed to be some layer of consent here. And with this, all of the pretense was stripped away. None of that was there. Like, it was just all about horrible sexual domination of a child. Although the trappings of Erastes Romanos were there, and a lot of Roman men played that up because they were kind of fetishizing that. So, a puer delicatus was seen as a status symbol for his owner. They were incredibly expensive, and only high-ranking, wealthy Romans could afford them. And those who were castrated were the most expensive of all, because not all of them were, did undergo castration, but some of them did, and there was an incentive to do this. I've seen some estimates that a boy who had undergone castration was three times to 50 times more expensive as a comparable non-castrated enslaved person would have been worth. So there was a huge financial incentive to do this here. So if a slave trader acquired a boy with those fashionable Ganymede-like looks, he could castrate that boy and boost his value exponentially. He might even attract a higher class of buyer, a Roman aristocrat, possibly. 
It was said that the more these boys resembled women, this is fucking horrible, I'm sorry. The more these boys resembled women, the more they inflamed the lust of wealthy buyers and the more they were worth. Some of the most beautiful of these boys caught the eye of emperors. I would say it's not going out on a limb to suggest that most Roman emperors kept puer delicatis or puer delicati, often more than one in their household. The practice goes all the way back to Augustus, who had one named Sarmentus. But there's one very famous example of a puer delicatis whose life is worth looking into a little more, and his name was Sporus. <laughs> I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. We don't know anything about Sporus's early life, how he came to be enslaved, or where he was from. We do know that he was probably enslaved young. We're guessing prepubescent or very early adolescent. And we know that he was very beautiful. He attracted the eye of the Emperor Nero. Some accounts say that Sporus resembled Nero's late wife, Papea, whom Nero had kicked to death in an argument but who he kind of missed after he'd killed her, and that's why Nero was willing to pay a fortune for Sporus. Soon after buying him, Nero had Sporus castrated in order to preserve his beauty. Then, Suetonius tells us that he, quote, tried to make a woman of him. Nero dressed him in women's clothes, referred to him as his empress, and made everyone else do the same, and even married him in a very public ceremony as his wife. A few years earlier, incidentally, Nero had also publicly married a freedman named Pythagoras, not the triangle guy. No, this is so much later than the triangle guy. The triangle guy is much earlier and had his own cult. This is not that Pythagoras. He did not invent the triangle. Anyway, so this was just the freedman that Nero married at a different wedding. At that wedding, Nero was the wife. Nero was very queer, or at least he's depicted that way by his biographers. It's said that the Emperor Nero called Sporus Papea after his late wife, who he kicked to death. Of course, undergoing castration of your own free will and adopting women's dress and a woman's name might all be gender-affirming acts if those are consensual, if that's what you choose to do. But this can't be said to be a consensual situation. For all his new title as Empress and wife of Nero, Sporus was still a child sex slave. This likely had very little, if anything, to do with his actual gender identity and everything to do with what Nero wanted him to be which is why I'm continuing to use he-him pronouns for Sporus. Cassius Dio says Nero, quote, use Sporus in every way like a wife, unquote. This is a child, and the reality is that these children had no protections, especially from someone as powerful as the emperor of Rome. Nero could do anything to anybody. This was a life of genital mutilation and continual rape for Sporus and hundreds, perhaps thousands of other boys who found themselves in this position. And on top of this, this young child, Sporus, would have had to do a lot of emotional labor to stay safe in Nero's household. He would have had to make sure that Nero always loved him, was always charmed by him, never found him irritating or annoying or less than perfectly beautiful. Nero had assigned a high-ranking Roman aristocratic woman to be Sporus's mistress of wardrobe. So it's clear 
Sporus had all the tools to take very good care of his appearance, but the reality is, once again, this was a child, you know, a prepubescent child who's dealing with trying to handle himself in this court with a man who is very unstable at the best of times and very violent. And very violent. And we're going to get into what would happen if he didn't keep Nero's interest. But once again, like, I'm kind of thinking, like, okay, say Sporus at this moment is 12. Like, 12-year-old Jen could not handle this. 12-year-old Jenny would, would be dead, like, very quickly. Yeah, exactly. 14-year-old Jen has a mouth that gets her into a lot of trouble, like... I know, and I think that that detail about the Roman aristocratic woman who was Sporus's mistress of wardrobe, that detail stuck out to me, and I included it because I was thinking about how high Nero's expectations would have been. This kid could not slip up, not in his appearance, and I'm conjecturing not in his behavior. It's very likely that Sporus would have been acutely aware of what had happened to his namesake, the wife that Nero had loved so much and thought he resembled, Poppea. Nero had, allegedly, kicked her to death when she complained that he spent too much time at the chariot races. So any kind of criticism at all, you know, anything innocuous like that, Nero might kick you to death. And this is the person that Sporus resembled and that Nero called him. He must have never stopped thinking about what had happened to actual Poppea. He's the one who looks like a beloved woman that Nero kicked to death. Like, he got so annoyed with his former wife, allegedly, that he kicked her to death. Like, you know, sometimes you look at this person who reminds you of that person, and you're like, I see all the good things. And other times you're like, I'm going to kick you again. Nero had some baggage, I guess you could say. This is a deeply imbalanced person. And also, like, Sporus was not the only puer delicati that Nero had. He had others. He was a wealthy emperor. He could afford whatever he wanted. And Cassius Dio tells us what happened to those who lost his interest. He was said to tie enslaved children that he had to stakes naked and attack them wearing animal skins to, quote, satisfy his lust. I don't think Cassius Dio in that passage said explicitly that these children were puer delicati, but I think it seems pretty obvious to me that they were or at least could have been. And even if they weren't, Sporus would have known about this and been aware that this is a thing that Nero did. So Sporus was probably every minute of every day keenly aware that if he didn't hold the emperor's favor, nobody was going to protect him from a fate like that. But that didn't stop him from occasionally speaking his mind in a very veiled way. Not long before Nero's death, it's said that Sporus gifted Nero with a ring that depicted the rape of Persephone. Hades dragging the young, beautiful Persephone into the underworld to be his wife. And it's not hard to see that as a commentary on how Sporus saw their relationship. And this gift came to be seen as a very bad omen for Nero. Because not long after Nero was gifted this ring, Nero died. His death is incredibly harrowing and creepy and happened as his ultimate successor Galba was galloping toward Rome. Nero believed Galba would have him put to death and he fled the palace with four close companions. One of them was Sporus. He wound up hiding in a villa owned by his freedman, Phaon, begging his companions to take his life, to join him in suicide, to lament and wail for him. And this last request was specifically directed at Sporus. Ultimately, it was Nero's secretary who helped him take his own life. And I don't think anybody took him up on the request to join him in suicide. Like, I think everyone was just like, not it. No, yeah, I, I think Sporus was like, do 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 do. <laughs> Gonna pretend I didn't hear that one. 
We actually covered Nero's death in one of the Praetorian Guard episodes, which we just re-released. So right before the Gender Rebel series, it's in, I think it's in Praetorian Guard's Caligula and Friends. So if you want to just review that, it's worth a second listen. It's really, really vivid how it's described. So Nero's death plunged Rome into an incredibly unstable and violent time called the Year of the Four Emperors. As a very visible member of Nero's household, one of the four closest to Nero in the world, this left Sporus in an incredibly dangerous position. Incoming usurpers were often not kind to the people who had been close to their rivals. Sporus faced being put to death, exiled and having everything he owned confiscated, assuming he owned anything as an enslaved person, not really clear, and any number of other horrible fates. What happened next shows that Sporus had very finely honed survival instincts. No doubt he used the most potent weapon that he had, his beauty, and his resemblance to Popea. When next we hear of Sporus, he had found another powerful protector, Nymphidius, the Praetorian prefect who'd persuaded Nero's guard to desert him on the night of his death. Like Nero, Nymphidius used Sporus as a sex slave, referring to him as his wife and calling him Popea. And to be clear, like we don't 100% know if Sporus actually sought out Nymphidius' protection or if this was like entirely unconsensual. I mean, it was probably non-consensual on some level anyway. Even if Sporus sought out his protection, there's such an power imbalance. I mean, it's not really consensual. Yeah, I totally agree. I just don't know if Nymphidius like made this happen by force or I really don't know. Nymphidius didn't last long. He was killed soon after Nero's death by his own guard when he tried to make himself emperor. Not long after that, Sporus turned up in the household of Otho, the third emperor to hold the throne that year. Otho had been married to the original Papea before Nero was, and it's possible Sporus, just trying to survive, used his resemblance to her to gain Otho's interest and protection. And it's likely that Otho also used him as a sex slave. Otho lasted about three months as emperor before he was deposed by another usurper, Vitellius. Vitellius was a very large, brutish man with a reputation for gluttony, and this time, Sporus was unable to gain his protection. According to the ancient sources, after deposing Otho, Vitellius planned to execute Sporus in a reenactment of the rape of Persephone during a gladiator show. Sporus ended his life rather than go through with this. And that is so dark and reminds me so much of the, there's an episode on our Patreon that we did called Mythological Ways to Die in the Arena where I kind of like looked at all of the different horrifying ways in which people died, like myth reenactments in the arena. They really did do that. It's really horrifying. So that was the extremely sad and violent life of Sporus. There's another poor Delicatus whose life I'm also going to talk about, and his name was Irinus. He lived in the court of the Emperor Domitian about 24 years after Nero's death. We don't know that much about Irinus's life. Most of what we do know comes from poems by two poets, Martial and Statius. So here's what we do know. Arinus was a boy from Pergamum, a town that was once part of Greece, but is now in northwestern Turkey. We're not sure if he was born in slavery or sold into it, but we do know that he was young and attractive enough to catch the emperor's eye. At some point in his childhood, he was sent to the court of Domitian. It's said Domitian fell in love with the boy and that he had him castrated to preserve his youth and beauty, although some accounts say that he was castrated before he came to Domitian's court. It's a little fuzzy about exactly when the castration happened. We don't know much about their relationship, but we do know two things, that at some point Domitian freed him from slavery, and not long after that, Arinus cut his long, 
beautiful hair and dedicated it to the god of healing, Escapolis. We're not sure how long Irinus had been with Domitian by then, but we do know that Domitian had been emperor for about 11 years at this point. He was around 42. And we're not exactly sure how old Irinus was, but he was probably a teenager. This event, as we said, was commemorated by the poets Martial and Statius, which are the two main sources for Irinus's life, and these poems are weird. They both fawningly praise Domitian's relationship with Irinus, praise their love, comparing them to Zeus and Ganymede, Zeus's beautiful boy cupbearer who he kidnapped and raped and who is kind of an archetype for puer delicati everywhere. It's extremely creepy. And they also rail against the cruelty of castrating children and using them for sex slaves, which is exactly what Domitian did with Irinus. So it's like these poems are really confused. And we're actually going to cover these poems on our Patreon because they are... They are really weird and really confusing, and they have everything to do with who Domitian was and what it looked like to be around in his court and sort of navigating this very volatile emperor. So anyway, I do want to talk about the significance of Irinus cutting his hair, because some scholars have cast this act as another subtle act of resistance, kind of like Sporus giving that ring to Nero. The emperor Domitian may have ordered Irinus castrated so that he would never grow up. Maybe it's not, it's not clear if he did that or if it was done before Irinus came to his court. But in ancient Greece, where Irinus was from, cutting one's hair and dedicating it to a god was an important coming-of-age ritual for boys. In other words, as soon as Domitian freed Irinus, he went expressly against the way the emperor saw him and went through a ceremony that marked a transition from boy to man. You could see it as an act of defiance. You could, you definitely could see it that way. So was Domitian angry at Irinus' behavior? No. Instead, he had some poems commissioned to commemorate this event. And at some point around this time, Domitian made it illegal to castrate children in the Roman Empire. Why he did this was unclear. Some ancient sources say it was to insult the memory of his older brother Titus, who had ruled before him and who, Suetonius tells us, quote, had a troop of eunuchs, end quote. But some historians, reading between the lines, believe that Domitian may, just may, have outlawed childhood castration because of his relationship with Irinus. This may be giving Domitian too much credit. The idea is that maybe Irinus persuaded him that this was a really cruel practice and he should outlaw it. This is the first time that I know of that castration was made illegal in ancient Rome. We don't 100% know if Irinus had anything to do with Domitian making this law, and we're not exactly sure when in the timeline it happened. The dates are fuzzy. And this theory is really more like informed fanfiction than history, but let's entertain it for a minute because we love fanfiction that is history-based on this podcast. Clearly, Irinus had the emperor's ear, and not only did Domitian free him, and let's be clear here, Domitian was extremely controlling. He was a controlling asshat. We're going to talk about it more in the Patreon episode. But not only did Domitian free him, but when Irinus kind of went against the emperor's wishes or way of seeing him and declared himself a man in public, Domitian didn't even punish him. He had the event commemorated in verse. Did Irinus also lobby the emperor to make castrating children illegal? Did he persuade Domitian of the horrific cruelty of this practice? Um, I mean, I can't say for sure. Maybe? At this point, Irinus disappears from history, so it's really impossible to know. But the ban on castration of children in ancient Rome continued. Domitian did leave some loopholes, for instance, 
You couldn't castrate a child in ancient Rome, but you could still, under his ban, sell children castrated somewhere else. Although he also put a cap on prices so that slave traders couldn't charge extremely high prices for these poor castrated enslaved children. So there was less financial incentive to do this to children, we hope. Thanks, Domitian. <laughs> I'm not even sure he gets a thanks here. I know. I'm, I'm being very sarcastic here. Um, like, I want to give him thanks, but I also know Domitian. Just wait till you get to know him a little better. Just for anyone who's not getting that, I know. So this ban went in and out over the centuries. Some subsequent emperors closed loopholes. Nerva made it illegal to sell boys to slave traders who practiced castrations. And Hadrian imposed an even more strict ban. Under his ban, it was illegal to castrate anyone, enslaved or freedmen, even if it was consensual, on pain of death both for the castrator and the castratee. It was considered as severe a crime as conspiracy to murder under Hadrian's law. When you look at the lives of both Sporus and Arinus, you can see how good these boys had to be at both emotional intelligence and maneuvering to stay alive. Like, they had to, like, manipulate these emperors into not killing them. And these emperors were very unstable people. They had real issues. Right. They were unstable and violent, and there was no checks. There were no checks on, on their power. You're talking about very young boys who are trying to navigate these very unstable, very violent men with a lot of power and zero checks on it. No one would have had any power to protect these boys. There is no one who could stand against the emperor when the emperor is being unreasonable. And, and we know that emperors were unreasonable or when the emperor is being volatile or aggressive or violent. Yeah, that's really true. Like, it doesn't even matter if people around... Sporus or Rhinus cared about them because what could they do if one of these kids got on the emperor's bad side, which was very easy to do? I, I just I can't believe that nobody cared. I imagine that people cared very much. But the best advice you could give these poor boys was, OK, what did you do wrong this time? How do we do better next time? How do we keep you alive a little longer? Yeah. I mean, they were both in extremely abusive situations and there was no way out. It's fucking horrible. And they're not the only ones. I mean, there were thousands of boys who went through this throughout the Roman Empire. Yep, these are just the most famous. So when you look at the lives of both Sporus and Arinus, you can see how good these boys had to be at both emotional intelligence and maneuvering and manipulation and emotional labor to stay alive. And while they were victims of horrible violence, both did rise to a certain level of influence. And that is important. We have to talk about that. Sporus was once treated as an empress, although that was non-consensual, and he did seem to have a keen sense of self-preservation. In a time of extreme upheaval where emperors lasted weeks or months, and influential members of an emperor's household could be killed en masse if the emperor was overthrown, Sporus moved from one powerful protector to another as emperors rose and fell, and it worked until it didn't. Once it didn't, that was it. You were done, and you kind of didn't know when that moment was going to be. Yeah, and it's hard to say how much of Sporus's attachments after Nero died were things that he sought out for his own protection, which again is questionably consensual in the first place, or things that just happened to him that he had no control over. But if this was something that, you know, he engineered for himself, like if this was him in a way seeking out his own protection, he would have had to be like really good at it to survive as long as he did. Like just very, very smart and very brave. And very calculating and manipulative and very charismatic and charming and able to anticipate and 
real high amount of emotional intelligence was needed on his part. Yeah, because he was like handling a bunch of very, very violent and dangerous abusers. Yeah, and very fragile men, because I'm sorry, I'm just going to say that about all emperors. They're all fragile. They all need just someone to constantly stroke that male ego. You are not wrong. I know I'm not. I hope. Come at me. I know I'm not wrong on this one. <laughs> She's going to die on this hill. Jen's like, I can defend this one. Don't worry. <laughs> Leave this one to me. There are things I take wide swings at and I'm like, maybe not this. And I'm like, nope. <laughs> anyway, Orinus may also have had Domitian's ear. He gained his freedom from the emperor, possibly went against Domitian's wishes for him by cutting his hair and proclaiming his own coming of age and had Domitian commemorating him for it. And maybe, just maybe, he persuaded the emperor to make the castration of children illegal. That one's a little bit iffy, but we like it, so we're going with it. But we like it, and as we've said, why are you using us for your history homework? Don't use us as your master's thesis source, that's all we're saying. Oh god, why would you do that? <laughs> anyway, the lives of Erinus and Sporus probably weren't even that unusual as Puer Delicate. Since the time of the Emperor Augustus, there were eunuchs, usually childhood sex slaves, elevated to the innermost circles of emperors of Rome. Many gained the ear of the emperor, and some wound up with real power, or gamed the ear of the emperor. Some of them became influential. And I'm going to give you some examples from the early empire. So Tacitus tells us that Nero had, quote, herds of eunuchs, and apparently, according to Tacitus, who's always up with the good gossip, he entrusted one to oversee the execution of a political rival. Claudius's taster, Halotus, Halitosis, remember him? He was a eunuch. Like Sporus, he was very good at finding powerful protectors. After Claudius's death, he went from Nero to Galba and was eventually appointed procurator, a governor of a small province. He landed on his feet. As time passed, the roles of eunuchs in the empire evolved just as the puer delicati could rise to an emperor's inner circle and even gain some amount of influence, so eunuchs rose to very influential positions in the later Roman Empire. Eventually, the people closest to the Roman emperor, those controlling who got to talk to him, those closest to his person, those standing between him and the outside world, were often a complex administrative core made up entirely of eunuchs. At some point, court eunuchs were the most powerful people in the empire, sometimes more powerful than the emperor himself. Some ancient sources point to a specific start date for the rise of the court eunuch in ancient Rome, the beginning of the reign of Diocletian. Diocletian became emperor in 284 AD at the age of 40. He took control after another extremely turbulent time, the crisis of the 3rd century. This was a 50-year period of violence that was kicked off by the assassination of Alexander Severus, a child emperor, by his own military. The ensuing half-century was characterized by invasions from without, rebellion and civil war from within, approximately 26 usurpers, give or take, plague, and widespread economic collapse. Diocletian enacted a number of reforms that brought stability back to the empire. He restructured the entire government, reimposing a certain sense of grandeur and authority. Some historians, both ancient and modern, say that he did this by looking to Persian and other Eastern models of government, which relied on eunuchs in positions of power. The Persians had had eunuchs in positions of power very close to their rulers since the time of Cyrus the Great, in the 500s BC, and possibly before. Court eunuchs had also been prevalent in China, 
and other Asian countries for centuries by now. There were reasons that eunuchs were so trusted in positions close to power. One was that as men with supposedly no sex drive, eunuchs were trusted to guard court harems and women's quarters and palaces. Of course, it isn't true that eunuchs have no sex drive and are incapable of sex, and women sometimes had very steamy affairs with eunuchs. That's true. Sometimes the women in the harem were having affairs with the eunuchs guarding the harem. Infamously, the Roman poet Martial, the same guy who wrote about Irinus, complained about this sometime between the 40s and 104 AD. I'm not exactly sure. He has this really salty comment in one of his poems, quote, Do you ask, Panicus, why your Caelia only consorts with eunuchs? Caelia wants the flowers of marriage, not the fruits. Yes, she does. Obviously, she doesn't <laughs> want the fruits. Who wants the fruits? Nobody. I mean, many people want the fruits, but I, I see the point for just having the flower, just the funness. Sometimes you just want the flower. And actually, you know, having a eunuchs-only sex policy is a good way to have birth control in the ancient world. I was thinking this. I'm like, it makes a lot of sense because you can enjoy yourself and not have to worry about having children, in theory. In theory, I mean, look, eunuchs can still get erections. They can still ejaculate. I'm not 100% sure if there's sperm in there. I don't know. I think I might have talked about it last time and I don't remember now. It's been at least a week. I have no memory of what happened a week ago. But anyway, so that was one role a eunuch could have in a royal household, guardian of the bed. And it would seem that the other role evolved out of this one, guardian of the bed, not for the women of the household, but for the emperor himself. The most powerful person in many imperial Roman courts, at least later in the empire, aside from the emperor himself, was the chamberlain. The chamberlain was a trusted personal attendant to the royal bedchamber and someone who managed the household, controlled the royal purse strings, and granted access to the emperor. This person was usually a eunuch. Eunuchs were trusted in these close personal roles because, as men who could not have children themselves, they were not seen as having an interest in overthrowing a dynasty, since they couldn't have children to perpetuate that dynasty. Diocletian, if you believe the sources, decided to take a cue from the Eastern model, seen among the Persians as well as the Chinese and other Asian cultures, and apply it to ancient Rome. Other sources contest that this was what he was doing. Some believe that casting Diocletian's expansion of the role of eunuchs in his administration as, quote, Eastern or, quote, Persian, is a way of othering Diocletian's actions. These sources point to the fact that eunuchs have been close, intimate members of the royal imperial household since Augustus. So it wasn't a big stretch for Diocletian to formalize that powerful role. Seen in this way, the tradition of the court eunuch may have arisen out of the role of the puer delicatus in the Roman household, or it may have been inspired by Persian and other Eastern cultures, or maybe a little of both. Either way, Diocletian brought eunuchs into his household and into his innermost circle, not in a sexual role, but in an administrative role. The men who guarded his bedchamber were eunuchs. So were his close advisors, bedchamber attendants, chamberlains, and household managers. They were men, not boys, from what I understand, and they were not sex slaves, as far as I know. Um, some of them were not enslaved. Like, there were times when these were freedmen. Diocletian didn't always trust his eunuch staff, however. In 303 AD, when a fire destroyed part of the palace, he let himself be convinced that his court eunuchs had been behind the fire, plotting with the Christians whom Diocletian had recently pissed off 
by ordering churches robbed, razed, and scriptures burned. Diocletian, in a paranoid fury, ordered all his palace eunuchs tortured and executed. But the prevalence of eunuchs at the imperial court continued. As the years went on, eunuchs became an extremely common feature of later imperial courts. As close advisors, attendants, bodyguards, and even military leaders, eunuchs were the people closest to the emperors, and many emperors had large, complex contingents of eunuch officials that increasingly kept them isolated from the public, the other Roman aristocracy, and even their other servants and officials. It became common for eunuchs to control the imperial treasury, the functioning of the palace, and all information that got in and out of the emperor's private chambers. In many cases, it was an emperor's court eunuchs who decided who got access to the emperor and what information to pass on or withhold from him. An emperor's life could become completely controlled by his eunuchs. But perhaps no eunuch held a more powerful role in the late Roman Empire than the one in the position of Grand Chamberlain. The Grand Chamberlain was the head eunuch. The official title was Provost of the Sacred Bedchamber, so Guardian of the Bed. The Grand Chamberlain would be the one in charge of all the other eunuchs, manager of the imperial bedchamber and wardrobe, and the people who controlled access to the emperor's person. It was a profoundly powerful and intimate position, and some individuals in this role rose to extreme heights of power. One of them was a eunuch named Eutropius. Eutropius lived in the 300s AD. What we know about his early life is from a poet named Claudian, who loathed him. Claudian's poem is literally called Against Eutropius. So take what we tell you here with a grain of salt, and bear in mind that Roman writers often demonize their enemies by making them seem feminine or gender nonconforming. And a lot of what Claudian has to tell us feeds into malicious stereotypes at the time about eunuchs. But it's what we've got as a source, unfortunately. According to Claudian, Eutropius was castrated as a very young child, maybe even in infancy, and sold as a child sex slave. Claudian tells us he was sold and sometimes passed along as a gift from household to household among soldiers, officers, and others. And he definitely describes the fact that Eutropius was sold to different people as like a bad thing about his character. Like he failed to keep people's interest and they just wanted to get rid of him. He's like he was a poor delicatus and he was bad at it. Um, which I doubt, seeing what Eutropius did next. Regardless, like, can we just... Claudian, you are talking about the exploitation of a child. He's in ancient Rome. He doesn't think that's wrong. Ugh. So eventually, Eutropius aged out of being a poor delicatus. Because that's the thing. Sometimes these boys age out, and we haven't even talked about what happens to them afterwards. I mean, you know, in the case of Sporus, they don't survive. Claudian says that as Eutropius grew older, he became less and less desirable as a slave. And I'm going to quote here. This quote is really wild. Quote, When he became but a foul, corpse-like body, a mass of senile, pendulous flesh, his masters were anxious to rid their houses of him by giving him away as a present and made haste to foist the loathsome gift on an unsuspecting friend. I mean, Eutropius was probably like, what, 18 at this point? Past his prime. <laughs> it's like 22. <laughs> this is so horrible. Anyway, Eutropius was perfectly capable of proving his usefulness in other ways. He worked as a pimp, a lady's maid, and an all-around fixer, if you believe Claudian, who tells us all this in an extremely sneering tone. 
So basically, he could get you laid, fix your hair and outfits, and basically work as a personal assistant, mainly for dirty work, like a dirty personal assistant. Look, he could get you the good edibles. He could bump off your enemies. He could smuggle whatever you wanted, get you laid. Like, he was here to do all the things that were very shady, and he was going to keep it a secret. It's how he kept himself useful, you know? He was your shady personal assistant. So eventually, one of Eutropius's masters freed him, and that's when Eutropius found his way into the household of the emperor Theodosius I, the Great. Eutropius rose in the ranks of the emperor's court eunuchs. By the time of Theodosius's death in 395 BC, he had risen to the top role, Grand Chamberlain, and was a trusted agent of the emperor. He developed an intense rivalry with the equally powerful Praetorian prefect Rufinus. When Theodosius died and his young son Arcadius became emperor, Eutropius was quick to step into the power vacuum. Arcadius wasn't quite a child emperor, he was 18, but he was still very young and no doubt in search of guidance. Eutropius quickly became very close to the emperor. They had a sort of father-son relationship. But Arcadius was also equally close to Rufinus, Eutropius's rival. He was really in search of father figures. He collected them all. The two jockeyed fiercely for power. When Rufinus tried to get Arcadius to marry his own daughter to get himself closer to the seat of power, Eutropius thwarted him by sliding Arcadius a picture of the drop-dead gorgeous daughter of one of Rufinus's enemies. Her name was Aelia Eudoxia. Arcadius leaped at the chance to marry her instead. Rufinus also ran afoul of the powerful Western general Stilicho, memorably ruining one of Stilicho's chances to defeat Alaric of the Visigoths in the eastern provinces, and eventually Stilicho plotted with Eutropius to have him murdered. Eutropius grew even more powerful after that. He was a consummate political maneuverer and fixer, with his hands in all the pies of imperial power. According to contemporary biographers, it was Eutropius who determined how provinces would be divided up. And Eutropius, he decided he would serve in various influential roles within the government. Hint, he was very susceptible to the bribes. He liked to bribe. Let me tell you something about Eutropius. Eutropius was on the take. I mean, he learned very early on. (laughs) Oh, he did. All you have to do is slide him a little envelope. Here's some tickets to Hadestown. (laughs) Oops, did you drop this? I think it's yours. (laughs) And there you go. It was Eutropius who served as high judge delivering sentences to high-profile crimes and deciding internal disputes. Eutropius led military response. He even personally commanded an army against the Huns in 398 AD and won. Eutropius had spies everywhere. Nothing happened in the palace that he didn't know about. He was also ruthless in engineering the downfall of his enemies, after which he would confiscate their property for himself, of course. He grew very, very rich. People described Eutropius' power at court very vividly in contemporary sources. The Greek sophist Eunapius said, The eunuch held power in the palace and coiling around the halls like a true serpent seized everything and dragged it off to his lair. Zosimus says that, There was no one at Constantinople that dared look Eutropius in the face, and Eutropius ruled Arcadius like a fattened animal. (laughs) Sorry. It's like, it reminds me of a Noxerer. Right? <laughs> Noxerers were these vampires that we talked about years ago in our first Ancient Vampires episode. They just made really noisy eating noises. Sorry, I just had to do it. <laughs> 
And here again, I just want to remind you guys of the prejudices that existed against eunuchs at this time. There was a strong ancient Roman prejudice against Easterners, against feminized Easterners, against feminized men. Eutropius came from somewhere in the Middle East, possibly Assyria, and he ticked all of those boxes. There wasn't much that pushed Roman buttons more than a feminine presenting man or a woman with power over them. And this trope may have fed into more modern tropes about the quote-unquote evil vizier in certain fairy tales. I'm getting strong Jafar vibes from Aladdin here. Incidentally, viziers, that was a real historical position. They were high-ranking political advisors in Ottoman Turkey and Persia much later than the Romans. But the Ottomans were the ones who came after the Byzantines, who came after the Eastern Roman Empire. So that stereotype in particular may have evolved from powerful court eunuchs like Eutropius. But anyway, back to Eutropius. While it's true that some, maybe most, sources in his life demonized him, one thing that comes through in all the sources is how he isolated the young emperor Arcadius. In 397 AD, just two years after Arcadius came to power, he was visited by Synesius of Cyrene, a Greek aristocrat who had come to his court to petition for lower taxes for his home city. Of course, Eutropius controlled access to the emperor, and he was in no hurry to grant an audience to Synesius of Cyrene, who didn't have the money and connections to offer the appropriate bribe. He didn't get the memo about dropping the envelope. Yeah, it took three years for Synesius to gain an audience with Arcadius, and he had time to observe how the court worked. What he saw was a young boy kept isolated by his entourage, distracted by luxuries and trivialities, out of touch with his army and people and prevented from doing the real work of ruling. When Synesius finally got a chance to meet with the emperor, he delivered a speech on kingship that contained a wealth of unsolicited advice for the young ruler that nobody asked for, let me be clear. Among the truths he laid down, welcome or not, include, quote, Your isolation reduces you to a life of sensuous fatuity. Your favorites are petty clowns who injure you by befogging your mind. Also, he said Arcadius, quote, lived the life of a jellyfish. Which, I mean, he spent three years in this court waiting to talk to Arcadius, and this is what he has to say when he finally gets that audience. Not even asking about the taxes in his hometown. No, he just has to speak his mind. Somehow, Synesius did get his tax remittance after this. I think he had made some kind of influential friend at court, maybe somebody who could just take him aside and be like, listen, buddy, this is how you do it. You get tickets to Hades Town. You drop them at Eutropius's feet. Walk away. <laughs> you could have done this three years ago, but nobody gave you the key to the secret palace. <laughs> anyway, so throughout his time at court, Eutropius amassed a reputation for greed, cruelty, and complete ironclad control over the young emperor's life and decisions. Ironclad. That's right, Cucullin. In 399 <laughs> AD... <laughs> Eutropius prevailed upon Arcadius to make him consul, head of the Roman Senate, which at this point was a figurehead position but was still very influential. This was a serious misstep. See, Eutropius forgot how bigoted and heteronormative the Greeks and Romans were. Everyone, the public, the nobles, the senators, everyone, was enraged at having a eunuch in the position of consul. Having a feminine presenting man as the power behind the throne was one thing, but having one rule openly? This was an insult to all the manly men, the impenetrable penetrators everywhere in the empire. We are the impenetrable penetrators. This shall not be tolerated. Exactly. 
At this point, Eutropius had made a lot of enemies. Perhaps none of his enemies was more formidable than the empress Aelia Eudoxia. Eutropius had gotten Eudoxia her gig as empress, but their relationship had soured, maybe because Eudoxia wanted to exert some influence of her own over her husband. There was room for only one power behind the throne, after all, and Eudoxia thought it should be her. Eudoxia and Eutropius were constantly plotting and maneuvering against each other, and now, with everyone furious at Eutropius's new appointment, Eudoxia saw an opportunity to rid herself of a powerful rival once and for all. She complained to Arcadius about Eutropius's incessant plotting, and Arcadius ordered him stripped of all of his power and exiled. Eutropius fled to the sanctuary of St. Sophia, a place where he had powerful friends. Famously, he cowered under the altar, hiding while the early Christian father, John Chrysostom, delivered a sermon. But soon Arcadius's soldiers caught up with him, and Eutropius was dragged out from under the altar in a most undignified fashion and sent to exile in Cyprus. All his property was confiscated, and eventually he was beheaded. His name was stricken from all official documents, and he became Damnatio Memoriae. But the tradition of the court eunuch did not die. It only got stronger as the Eastern Roman Empire evolved into the Byzantine Empire. In the Byzantine court, eunuchs had their own separate hierarchy and career path, ruled by archieunuchs, that was the job title, archieunuchs, who worked directly under the emperor. They were his most trusted agents, some served as generals. At certain points in history, these were no longer enslaved people. They were free, and castration was a job requirement. People chose castration so they could qualify for high-level government positions. The Byzantine Empire lasted until around 1453, and while the position of eunuchs declined in its later years, the tradition did not disappear entirely. It continued on in the Ottoman Empire up until the early 1900s. In some Asian countries, the tradition went on even longer. The last surviving imperial eunuch of China died in 1996 at the age of 94. So that's it for this week. Join us next week for a new episode. In the meantime, catch up with us on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan or on Instagram and Facebook at Ancient History Fangirl. And consider joining our Patreon. You can join at patreon.com slash Ancient History Fangirl. And don't forget, we have a book coming out, Jenny. We do. We're so excited about it. You can pre-order that book on our website. There's going to be a page that gives you all the requisite links. Please do that. It's called Women of Myth. It's about women in mythology all over the world. And we're so excited about it. We cannot wait to share these stories with you. This is the first time we've ever got to say it in an episode because of how we record our episodes. And we didn't know when things would drop. But we can actually say we have a book coming out in August. Please pre-order. And thank you so much for all your support. We will see you next week. It's at ancienthistoryfangirl.com. You can find links to places to pre-order there. Please visit and we will see you next week. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.